in uh, God's Word to Mark chapter 10. We're just kind of doing a one-off here with uh, Mark 10 because uh, in the weeks to come, uh, going into uh, the spring, all the way into the spring, we'll be looking again, picking back up where we left off last year in the Gospel uh, according to Luke. Uh, But this week we're going to, uh, as we kind of orient our minds into a new year, uh, hopefully a fresh start, we're going to look at a particular passage in Mark 10, uh, verse 35 and uh, following, and uh, it's going to be, I'll tell you, just up front, it's going to be one of those passages that you're tempted to say to yourself, what on earth are they thinking? The, the disciples, I mean, they, they're, they're out of their minds. Uh, what are they thinking? What are they doing? It's like the time I remember uh, when one of my drunk friends decided that he was going to walk on, uh, you know, the, the, the railing of a, a, a tall deck. And I said, what, what are you doing? Get down. You're going to hurt yourself. Uh, It's almost as if Jesus is going to say to some of the disciples here, uh, you're intoxicated with worldly ideas and ambitions and desires. Uh, This is dangerous. Get down from there. Uh, This is not uh, wise. It is dangerous. And I've got a different plan. Come join me uh, and listen. In fact, a little bit earlier uh, in Mark chapter 8, we hear Jesus directly rebuking Peter. And he says this, you are not setting your mind, Peter. Uh, You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And we know that sometimes those can be very opposed and and very different. And we we tend to track in one direction, uh, at least I know I do, uh, towards the thoughts of, of, of humans, fallen humans. It's not once, it's not twice, it's actually been three times the building up to where we find ourselves right now. Uh, in the the account that Jesus has predicted, that Jesus has directly foretold uh, that the disciples should anticipate their journey to Jerusalem where he will not ascend to some type of earthly kingdom or political power, but he is telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. It's not what you think. I will go there to die. It doesn't sound like victory, uh, and, and they can't hear it. Uh, they, they, they're confused. Uh, it's, it's, it's perplexing to them, and they don't, uh, they don't uh, embrace it. So as they're heading on their journey to Jerusalem, we see this episode here. You can go ahead and stand because we're going to read God's word again. Uh, we find this episode where James and John Essentially, I don't know the tone of their voice or their posture, but it's in essence as if they're going to whisper and pull Jesus aside, uh, just the two of them, uh, along with Christ, and say this. Are you ready? Hear this. God's word, beginning Mark 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that is Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized? And they said to him, Well, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, well, they became uh, indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. May he bless it to our hearts. You may be seated. Let's ask his help. Father, please guide us and grant to us focus and and clarity. Please shine, I I ask right now, uh, brighter than our emotions and clearer than our emotions, our temptations and distractions. Help us to see clearly uh, the beauty and the mystery that's here, the paradox that we find of of suffering and serving Jesus on a road to greatness. For we pray in his name, for his sake. Amen. Uh, Most of you uh, know full well uh, that aside from praying for our president or other elected officials, uh, I don't go into politics uh, here as a preacher of the gospel. Uh, today I'm going to make a slight exception, and, uh, and now you're interested. Uh, I've got you. Uh, a slight exception. You know, less than a month ago, well, we were driving, we saw the, the flags at, at half staff, and, and I honestly didn't know. I've I, actually been kind of avoiding the news lately. But uh, lo and behold, uh, Senator Bob Dole had died at the age of 98. And Bob Dole was a great man. He was a World War II veteran. He got the Bronze Star. He had a Purple Heart, and uh, and he was he was he came home from war and, and and ran for elected office. He was a great man, partly due to the fact that he married a godly Presbyterian from my home state of North Carolina. Um, to capture his greatness, I thought I would use uh, the words and and you know this is kind of of all people a Democratic uh, governor Laura Kelly from Kansas. This is what she wrote: I was deeply saddened to learn of the passing of Bob Dole this morning. Senator Dole was many things: a war hero, a father, a husband, a public servant, and to Kansans, a man who embodied everything good and decent about Kansas and about America. Senator Dole's legacy goes far beyond the walls of Congress. He was a larger-than-life presence in our nation's politics and demonstrated a decency, a humility, and a civility that should serve as a model for those of us in public life. Honestly, I just found it refreshing that someone from the the other side of the political spectrum and and, uh, party uh, could say things like this in a a place and a time where we're really uh, fractured, uh, where we're we're polarized uh, as a nation. People do tend to say the, the nice things about you when you're dead. Uh, yeah. But uh, we can celebrate today the greatness, not of any politician, but the greatness of the God-man. And not because he's dead, but because, but because precisely because he is alive. That he is the living, great one that we follow. Every time that we gather for worship on the Lord's Day, this is what we refer to it as, his day, Uh, Resurrection Sunday, which is every Sunday, not just Easter, we gather here and we hear, we we should encounter three themes, three things that we should always be encountering if, in fact, we follow the the wisdom of the call to worship. For instance, this morning we read in Colossians 3 together, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If that's happening, then one thing that's going to happen for sure is that these three themes are always going to be there. Are you ready? Here's what they are. The glory... The gravity and grace. Glory, gravity, and grace. I'll explain what I mean. Uh, the glory meaning God's uh, holiness. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the perfection of God. And amongst other things, that's one of the reasons that in the context of worship, 
we always have a prayer of adoration because we're acknowledging, we're thanking him. And then there's the, the gravity. That's why we sing songs as well to celebrate, to acknowledge, to uh, exalt the glory of our God and our maker and our redeemer. And then we have the gravity, right? Every Lord's Day we have confession of sin because we're, we're coming in and in, in, we're encountering the gravity of the grievousness of the ways that we break God's law and his character. And that's, that's part of what goes on. We, we always have a prayer of confession. The other thing that we all, also should always encounter is grace. Uh, the, 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 the celebration of the person and work of Jesus, who is the mediator of a covenant of grace and mercy that we don't deserve and can't earn, praise be to God that we can come again and celebrate his grace. All of those themes are right here, I think pretty clearly, in this encounter, in this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And I'm not going to follow it as a precise outline in a rigid way. We're just going to kind of map back over what took place in this conversation and let those things kind of bubble up. Again, if we were to back up, uh, we, we, we really, the disciples shouldn't have any reason to be surprised or confused that Jesus said what he said here, but they don't want to be confronted with the truth. I think is part of the problem. Multiple times he had, predict, he had predicted that he was going to suffer and die. Just verses prior to this in Mark 9, we read in verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. Now, why are they afraid to ask him? I think it's because they didn't want the answer. They were unsettled at the prospect of what he might say. And I, I particularly wonder that because if you get to our text here, they don't seem to have any problem asking. Let's just look at it again. Verse 35, how did they lead out? These, uh, thun, the, 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 uh, the, the sons of thunder, as they're referred to, James and John, they came to him and said to Jesus, Teacher, okay, that's it. That's an honorary uh, title of respect. But then they say this. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's pretty bold. Why are you now not afraid to ask? Well, it's because they have an agenda. They're not, they, were, they were concerned about the answer if it involved going to Jerusalem to suffer. But now they're asking because they have designs and desires selfishly. They're pretty bold. Actually, in Matthew's gospel, this same account, it's their mommy who goes to Jesus and says, can you let my sons be on your left hand and your right hand? I guess Mark wanted to save a little bit of face for them, so he didn't include that. They wanted to head to Jerusalem, I've already alluded to this, to, so that when Jesus gained his prominence, that they, then he, as they envisioned and desired, that he would inaugurate a kingdom, Herod would be wiped out, they would have power and status, and we're just simply asking to beat number two and number three. We know you're number one, you're Messiah, you're the king. And where do we see here the grace of God? The grace of Jesus here, he doesn't rebuke them. Isn't this interesting? Instead, he, he, he becomes curious. And he says, well, well what, what did you have in mind? <laughs> what is it that you want me to do for you? Why does Jesus ask questions like that? Because he is the master. <laughs> and he knows how to reveal our hearts. And he asks them, and they say, oh, well, this is what we want. Then, of course, he brings back a rhetorical question. Let's look at the text again, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup and be baptized with the baptist? In essence, you want to you want to reconsider that question? I mean, I, I don't even, I don't know the tone, but, you know, it's like you could we could we wrote back around. Are you 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 do you really know? Because if you really knew what you were asking, you wouldn't be asking that question. It reveals their hearts. Their answer in one word is, yep, we got this. Jesus says, OK, you want glory, but there's going to be suffering first. When we were down in Florida two weeks ago uh, on Sunday, we went to a PCA church uh, to worship and it was a sweet time. And uh, the pastor was preaching on this exact same text. And uh, and I had preached on it and I've taught this text before. And uh, and he had a new he had a new angle and uh, and it just kind of, you know, dialed me in to consider a new aspect of it. And one of the things that the pastor highlighted in teaching this is notice that Jesus does not rebuke their desire for greatness. He doesn't. He just challenges and reorients their definition of greatness because they want status and they want prominence. You see, desire for greatness is not inherently wrong. It's our definition of greatness that so often gets us into trouble. To have ambition, to have goals or a desire to succeed or prosper in some measure in our, our various endeavors, whether that's for you, business or athletics or academics or, or whatever your vocation is, is not bad. The problem comes in when we have a distorted understanding and definition of greatness. And that's where the gravity of our sin tends to rear its ugly head, because oftentimes in our in our culture and in, in our uh, worldly ways and our own in our own pride and flesh, our definition of greatness revolves around things like status and seek and it's, it's it's seeking status and comparison. We sense, let's be honest, we sense that we have a measure of greatness because of things like position and pay and praise. Three P's, easy to remember, position, pay, and praise, right? We know this. We say, I know that I'm great because of my reputation. Lots of people think well of me. Lots of people like me. I have this compensation. I have this position. And therefore, I can feel and know that I'm, I'm good. I'm great. Again, where else do we see the gravity here of, of sin? Well, they want glory. We said it's just James and John. No, it's not. Because if you go and look carefully, what does it say in verse 41? The rest of the disciples, then the ten heard of this, and they became indignant with James and John. Why are they angry? Are they angry because James and John, these two brothers, are being presumptuous and, uh, and, and, and arrogant? No, because James and John beat them to it. Sometimes we're, we're, not, we're not upset that we got our share. It's just that other people got in line in front of us. Or that everyone got the same thing. We want to be there. They're upset because they want the same thing. And so Jesus says, okay, I want everybody to come around now. He, in essence, summons them all and brings them in to help have some focus here about their problem. What is your desire? What is it that you aspire to? What is it, what is it that would define greatness 
for you. What is that definition? You have one. I, I, I I can assure you we all do. What is your definition? How many of you, let me throw a couple questions out there as we move into 2022. How many of you this year would desire to become rich? Show of hands. Okay, we got some honest people. I appreciate this. Okay, thank you, Derek. I don't know how you'll get there, uh, but uh, you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. Maybe, how, no, we wouldn't raise our hand. Typically, we would say, "I don't want to be so vain. I don't, you know, I don't want to be filthy rich." No, I, that doesn't look. How many of you? Let me change the question. How many of you would like to be in 2020 a servant? A servant. 2022, a servant this year? How many of you want to be a servant? No, we don't raise our hand to that one either. We would rather just be comfortably and conveniently somewhere in between all of that. True? Oh, we don't want to be filthy rich and we don't want to be a slave. We don't want to be a servant to people lowly in that kind of way. We just want to be comfortably, conveniently somewhere smack dab in the middle. Jesus gives a new definition of greatness. Let's read it again. Verse 43. But I, but it shall be not so among you, but whoever would be great. He didn't say that was bad, but he just redefines it. Among you, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You know, the wonderful thing about that, anyone can be a servant. And so anyone in God's economy can be great. You don't need education. You don't need credentials. You don't, you don't need recognition. You don't need special skill sets to be a servant of others. And you can be great. You notice here, I mean, I, maybe you've noticed this. It seems that in management uh, and in marketing, lots of people nowadays, whether it's an organization or a school or a business, they like to publicize what is their mission statement. I was in the airport recently, and one of the airlines, this was their mission statement. We are dead. Their mission is a dedication to the highest quality of customer service delivered with a sense of warmth, friendliness, individual pride, and company spirit. Isn't that inspiring? That just sign me up. They're hiring. Lots of people are. Isn't that inspiring? This is going to sound jaded. Lots of my comments could begin that way. What if a company, just let's be frank, our mission is to make as much money as we possibly can and look good while doing it. There it is. I, hey, I, I'm, sign me up. It sounds, pretty, it sounds pretty transparent. Sounds pretty straight up honest, doesn't it? If you were to, if you were to survey... All of Scripture, if there was one place in a succinct way that we could sum up Jesus' mission statement, it is right here in verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's it. And he says to us, and that's, that's an upside down way of looking at it, especially in the world's estimation. And he says, would you come and join me in it?
talks about drinking this cup and being baptized. Now, that's an Old Testament uh, imagery that uh, sometimes means blessing, but oftentimes connotates judgment and harsh difficulty or or hardship and suffering. Jesus is saying you, you need to understand this is what's in view. To follow Jesus, to identify with Jesus, that is his identity, servant and his mission to to not be served, but to serve. Elsewhere, he puts it this way, to take up your cross and follow me and to deny yourself. The true servant and true service is other-oriented, not self-focused. In fact, it involves self-denial. But again, that's where the gravity of our sin uh, tends to to, uh, 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 rear its ugly head again. The direction of self-seeking is, of course, inward. We have a name for that. It's called narcissism. Now, by the way, narcissism is not just thinking lofty thoughts and looking at ourselves with admiration all the time. It can also be looking at ourselves with criticism and condemnation. I'll explain more what I mean. Let me give you two illustrations, two types. One is a self-absorbed person for the sake of self, and another is a self-denying person for the sake of self. The self-absorbed person... For the sake of self, these are the people who can't see past themselves. You know the kind of person? Every conversation, every topic needs to make its way back to them. They can't enjoy the victories of other people. Why? Because that makes them feel insecure and threatened. They can't sympathize with other people's feelings because they don't want to feel bad. They don't deny themselves hardly anything. Sometimes we despise these types of people. And sometimes, if we're honest, we almost envy them. Now, there's another type that is a self-denying person for the sake of self. They deny themselves certain things because they believe in the, the principle of delayed gratification. I mean, this is, this is, okay, this is like Planet Fitness 101, folks, okay? This is the new year. This is what we do, right? We deny ourselves certain things short-term for long-term gain, whether it's junk food or frivolous spending or certain comforts for the sake of self-improvement and personal fulfillment. To the person who is self-absorbed for the sake of self, or the person who is self-denying for the sake of self, Jesus says to both of those, great, good for you, prosper, gain the whole world of pleasure and money and leisure and self-improvement as the world would define it. Gain all of that. But you very well may lose your own soul. John Stott has a wonderful book called The Cross of Christ. And in it, he talks about self-denial. He says self-denial is not denying to yourself luxuries such as chocolates and cakes and cigarettes and cocktails. Although maybe that would include this. Self-denial is actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. That's the servant. And, and, and we don't need to put, by the way, a, a religious face on this either. That if we deny ourselves, we become more moral, we become more uh, holy, so that God would somehow owe us a blessing or a favor. This is not a bargain, right? That would not be the gospel. Why are you serving Why are you denying yourselves so that somewhere along the way you can say to God, look 
look, I laid it down. I was sacrificial. I I was obedient. Uh, Therefore, bless me. That's not the gospel. Instead, we're called to forgetting ourselves for the sake of ministry and others. Serving others with nothing to gain, with no sense of self-righteousness or or, or craving for praise and acknowledgement. Just turning from that inward direction and focusing on the needs of others, even if it might involve a degree of suffering. You know, to serve others with compassion, with love, and with care, even giving up that very, 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 very precious thing we call our time to people around us who need to hear about Jesus or need or are lonely or who need a listening ear who are hurting. Jesus is, is he's teeing it up. He is calling us this year as with every year to a radical discipleship. With the goal being self-denial and service. Because the true avenue, the true way to greatness is not status. It is service. That was a takeaway from that sermon I heard two weeks ago. I love that line. True greatness, the avenue, the way to greatness is not status but service. So back to my question. Who here uh, really, in, 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 in all honesty, wants to be a servant? Well, that assumes that you're not already one. Because every last one of us is serving something or someone. Desires, demands, devices, we're all serving. And you would be wise and I would be wise and well to make sure that it is a good master that we're serving this year. Jesus is that master. He laid down his life. Serve him. Friends, trust him. Call on him for mercy. It's in Christ's upside down kingdom that servants find freedom. Because he serves to the point of even death so that he could be a substitute. Verse 45 says a ransom. He's a payment for our debt, for our imprisonment, for our for the, the slavery that we have to sin. Praise be to God. The essence of self-denial is not the exercise of our determination and our will. True self-denial is utter dependence, leaning wholeheartedly with, with every, you know, our, our whole fiber, with abandon to the mercy and the grace of God manifest in our suffering but risen Savior Jesus. In our suffering, in our trials, in our darkness, in our undesirable, unhappy place, wherever that is, in our attempt to look beyond and serve other peoples, to you, Christ, and to grace alone, we are dependent debtors. Jesus headed into Jerusalem, uh, but what was the throne that he ascended? It was a cross. And who was on his right hand and who was on his left hand? Well, it wasn't James and John. It was two criminals. Here's my last question. It might seem like a detour. Just hold with me. Who is your biggest critic? Who is your biggest critic? Is it your boss? It is it is it your is it your your parents? 
your children, your spouse. Some of you might be a little more sophisticated and you say, oh, no, I'm my biggest critic. No, you're not. The cross is your biggest critic. Because at the cross, Jesus says clearly, you cannot improve yourself. You cannot deny yourself enough. You cannot justify yourself with enough service and good deeds. You are needy and you are helpless. Thanks be to God that there is grace, grace for sinners. Through Christ alone, as we sang earlier. Grace to sinners who understand the gravity of their sin and who someday, if we persevere, will experience the glory. We will share in the glory of our Savior. Join me in prayer, please. I'm going to pray. This is a Puritan prayer that I use from time to time from Valley of Vision. I'll lead out with this. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where we live in the depths, but we see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let us find Light in, your dark, in our darkness, life in our death, joy in our sorrow, grace in our sin, your riches in our poverty, your glory in our valley. Father, that puts it better than I can, but I would just add, please help us. In fact, forgive us, Lord, for such a distorted view of greatness and a distorted definition. Help us, Lord, to be a people, a church who are aligned with Jesus and his mission. In fact, give us boldness in this new year ahead, not to just achieve personal goals, but to really see your kingdom come and your will be done in our church, as we will say together in a moment. Lord, we will also pray in a moment that you'd give us our daily bread, and you've done that in abundance. We thank you, God, for answered prayer. We thank you for bringing some healing to our brother Joe and his lungs. We pray you continue to watch over him. Lord, we pray for children in our church, unborn children. Thank you for continuing to add to that number. And we pray for for mothers and for children. Lord, I I pray right now for students and for teachers who go back this week and and face many challenges getting their gears going again. I, I, I pray for perseverance and encouragement. Lord, I pray for people who are lonely. I pray for people who are struggling. And there are many, many, many with COVID and all the impact and the effects of that. Please have mercy. Bring your healing touch. Lord, I pray for your healing touch to be with Nancy Whitty's father and his his leg. Would you give him peace even as they seek to tend to him and mend him? Lord, we could point to, to many struggles and ailments. We could also point to news of rejoicing, and we do that this morning. We rejoice with 
Ron and Cindy Newton at the arrival of a, a new baby, a grandbaby for them, a granddaughter. Thank you for answered prayer. Lord, please guide us even now as we come to your table and as we pray in Jesus' name as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from temptation.